Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out on another slightly chilly night. I am bundled up in Ariel, who lives in Nashville, is tougher, so she's, as you see, not even wearing a coat. Uh, Phoenicians are truly weather wimps, right? We all are. At least it's not raining, <laughs> which is really good. Um, anyway, thank you, virtual audience, for joining us. And I'm really excited because I think this is your first visit to the Poison Pen, but I might be wrong, and you came here with John Charles. No, first in-person visit, though I have done an online one with you once before. Not with me, but with John, wasn't yes. it? Yeah, it was with John. Right, so we are here to talk about Frozen River, which is an amazing book. It is a Good Morning America book club book, and it actually came out in early, was it December? December 5th. Right, um, and so we've held grimly onto our copies in order to have this event tonight. Um, <laughs> clearly not quite enough copies, but that's okay. We are, we are sold out. Yay. Yay. <laughs> right. Yay. And if anything more happens, I will indeed ask you if we could send you some books okay. to Nashville. I will sign anything, right. anytime. So. so Ariel has written a couple of other books of historical fiction. I think, what, three? Five. Or four? Five. Five. Five altogether. Proving I have not actually talked to her before. Right. Um, and this one um, you have based upon a real person who, by good fortune, kept a notebook. So why don't you introduce us to Martha in her notebooks before we talk about the novel? Of course, would love to. The Frozen River is about a woman named Martha Ballard. She was a midwife in 1700s Maine, and she is notable for three reasons, really. The first is that she delivered over a thousand babies in the course of her career, and she never lost a mother in childbirth. I don't personally know an OBGYN today that can boast a record like that. Second, she is the great aunt of Clara Barton, founder of the American Red Cross, and she is the great-great-grandmother of Mary Hobart, who was one of the first female physicians in the United States. So the medical legacy that she left is unparalleled. But the reason this novel exists is because she kept a diary for over 30 years at a time when women mainly were illiterate. They could not read or write, but she could. And in this diary, she recorded every birth, every death, every murder, and every scandal that happened in the town of Hallowell, Maine. And it is the contents of that diary that inspired this novel. How did you get your hands on the diary? Good question. I had actually never heard of Martha Ballard until August 8th, 2008. I can remember the date exactly because I was in the doctor's office pregnant with my fourth son. My husband and I had five, four boys in five years. It was a lot. We still <laughs> could really have used Martha, right? <laughs> we still have not recovered. Um, but I was in the doctor's office that day, and my doctor was late, and had he been on time, this book would not exist in the world. But he'd gotten stuck at the hospital with a tricky delivery, so I got stranded in his waiting room. And I had two choices. I could reschedule and go home, but there were children there, and I didn't currently miss them. <laughs> and I had a babysitter, so nobody was going to die. Or I could stick it out and wait, and that's what I chose to do, and it was hours in that waiting room and I read the novel that I brought with me which was Stardust by Neil Gaiman which is a wonderful novel and then I read every single magazine in the waiting room and there was nothing left but a pile of really scary pamphlets in the corner so I was digging through the pile and underneath there was a small devotional really common in Texas at the time so I opened it to that day August 8th and I read about a woman named Martha Ballard who was a midwife, and I remember thinking, that would make a great novel. So I ripped the page out, I stole it, and I put it in my purse. And I kid you not, my doctor walked in two minutes later. And I held on to that page for 13 years. It was not, even though I found the idea first, it was not the first novel that I wrote. I kept coming back to it over the years. But after I got home that day, I found out that Martha Ballard had written a diary. She'd kept a diary for all those years. And I did a little bit of research and found a copy at an out-of-print bookshop in Maine that I ordered and kept and just held on to for all those years. So do you feel like you're you're writing in Martha's voice to a great degree. How much did her entries in the diary influence the voice that you chose to narrate this book? 
So very good question. If you read her diary, which you won't, it is 900 pages and actually very dry. She does little to no editorializing in this diary. It's not a diary that we think of where people spill their secrets. It's more of a day book. My grandmother kept one. So it's the date, it's the weather, what she did, if she delivered a baby, what she made for dinner, that type of thing. And so each entry is maybe eight, ten lines, and there's not a lot of emotion there, which was actually a challenge for me because in recreating a historical figure, it helps if I can find their voice. So in this case, I had to create that out of whole cloth. In fact, you do narrate this novel in Martha's voice. Yes, I do. It's first person, present tense. So we are, we begin with her up close and personal. We do not leave her until the very end. You are with her all the way. Right. And actually, much historical fiction is not written in the present tense. That's often reserved for, you know, for thrillers or this whole, you know, psychological trust no one, you know, the Gone Girl clones, um, because it adds to the immediacy and some degree the uncertainty. But, well, so it's interesting that you chose to write it in the first person. I feel like if you're going to go hundreds of years back in time, you're met with an immediate barrier for the reader that, oh, this happened a long time ago. This, this isn't now. But if you change it to present tense, what it says to the reader is this is happening right now in front of me. And for me, it was just a technique to make the past feel more immediate. Which is a very good one. But it also raises a question if you're doing that. Because um, language changes. And uh, how did you avoid any, you know, absolute clunkers in the sense of using modern terminology? You know, it would be terrible if you said, you know, if one of her prescriptions was go home and take two aspirin, um, <laughs> which wasn't invented till the 1920s, for example. Um, so how did you keep up with all that? I had to remember that there was a sense of formality in the way that they spoke. Um, fewer contractions. And originally, the first draft is you get the story done. I'm, I'm only focused on the story, the events, making sure everything flows. And every event after, or every draft after that, I come back and I look at the language or I look at the dialogue. I look at the description. And so, I don't know, second or third draft probably, I was really careful to look at the language, make sure that it felt more formal, but also not so formal that it pulled you out of the storytelling. I wanted to find that balance that it was accessible, but you were still aware of reading something that took place 200 years ago. Right. No, there was a lot more formality. People didn't call you know, people by their first names. In fact, husbands and wives often called each other by, you know, Mr. or whatever it all is. And then you have to be really careful of verbs like railroaded. I mean, railroad is a great verb, right? But yeah. it doesn't work terribly well. When there's no railroad? When there are no railroads, exactly. <laughs> Um, so, you know, I remember years ago editing a Roman series and, um, and the author was writing briskly about building something out of concrete and I thought, well, that can't be right. And so I looked it up and actually it was right. Roman concrete is in fact a Roman, um, invention, but you know, it, it sounded too modern. And so I felt like I had to check it. So did you run into any situations like that? Um, I've always had really good copy editors and I, I'm also very careful when I write. So I, I footnote everything. I research everything. I am really careful. I didn't have any issues with that with my copy editors. I did have my copy editor quarrel a bit about a due date and some delivery details. And she asked me, are you sure? Have you ever delivered a baby? <laughs> and it is the, probably the closest I've come to ever being arrested. I had I had to back, hold myself back. And so that, those were the issues that I had with my copy editor. It was more things to do with motherhood and childbirth that I actually do know a great deal about. Um, and I had to restrain myself and Sounds give like the facts. Sounds like your copy editor was lacking in life experience. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Um, so one of the things that I really loved about the book is that Martha clearly has a very long and very happy marriage. She had... How many children? Nine. And she lost three. But she lost three. There are only six living when the story opens. That's not a but spoiler. But they didn't die in childbirth. They, they died, what, from diphtheria? Yes, later. That is, yes, later. Right. So they were kind of halfway through her parenting experience. So one of, the, one of the real charms of the book, for those of you who have read it, is Martha talking about her husband, Martha's um, I mean, they really had a very supportive marriage 
They had great sex. Well, because they had nine children, but, you know. Um, As well you should if you have that many children. Yeah. Um, I mean, I really thought that that enriched your novel, you know, to realize that, you know, what what her personal life was like as well as the... But because it's a mystery, there has to be an instigating yeah. incident. So what is the instigating incident that kicks off the plot? The instigating incident and the first sentence of the novel is the body floats downstream. And within the first page, you find this dead man in the river. And then as happens quite often in Hallowell, Maine, still the river freezes solid. It is the dead of winter. So this man is now trapped dead in the ice. And Martha, who is a midwife, but was also a healer. She was a medical professional. She did medical care for her community. She would perform autopsies. She would do minor surgery. She is called in the middle of the night after just delivering a baby to confirm the cause of death. And she looks at the man he is a man accused of raping a woman months earlier. She's familiar with that as well because she treated the victim there. She declares it a murder, and no sooner does she do that than a new young doctor shows up in town, and he says, no, this was accidental drowning. And it sets off this entire chain of events in which Martha is left to investigate a murder because no one else is doing it. But, plot twist, the dead man actually deserved to die. So it's this kind of... I think reverse mystery in a sense. Typically, we want to know who killed the person because they were innocent and you want to bring them to justice. In this case, we want to make sure that the right person is caught. Actually, in this case, we're really yeah, glad that the guy is dead in the yes. river. Yeah. That's not, that's not, it's not even an ethical problem. Um, and Martha, in fact, has to make some interesting choices, you know, about, about that. Um, how is justice achieved? Um, and, you know, accusations of rape we know until very recently when there is some, you know, forensic and DNA evidence that can support that was always the swearing match, you know, she says, and then, you know, he denies it, and there was really almost no way to prove it. Yes, um, and I felt terrible for the for the woman who who says that she was raped, you know. Um, she says that she's raped, nobody believes her, and then she's pregnant. And so not only does Martha have to investigate this murder, she's left to tend with the very real results of that assault. And it, again, spirals off in many directions. And to make matters worse, her own family is implicated. So she's defending her family. She's trying to find the truth. She's trying to seek justice for this woman in her community. And it goes on from there. So it doesn't help that the co-rapist um, is a person of standing in the community that um, actually has some legal standing and when he is accused and brought to trial they don't really believe it and so they want to try him on a lesser charge so then we have a whole question of okay one of them's in the river yay uh, <laughs> you can see where I stand on that one uh, and then what's going to happen to the other one, um, and we aren't going to talk about that because be a spoiler, but it's really quite satisfying. <laughs> right. Yes. Hmm. What's fascinating is at the time that Martha Ballard lived, women could not testify in court apart from their husbands or their fathers. It was called the law of coverage. With one exception, midwives could testify in claims of paternity so that the unwed mother could get financial help for her child. It was a law in Massachusetts called the Punishment for Fornication and the Maintenance of Bastard Children. And you would think that she would not have to do this often. This is 50 years post-Puritan era. But at her time, four in ten first pregnancies were conceived out of wedlock. So Puritans, not so pure, apparently. Only one or two in ten was actually born outside of wedlock. And what you had was a lot of shotgun weddings and a lot of nine-pound premature babies. <laughs> but in Martha's diary, it is fascinating to see her. She would go before the court. She would tell them the name of the father. And she was required to do this because the law truly believed that a woman could not lie while she was in labor. <laughs> which proves that they knew nothing about labor and less about women. <laughs> I think she would lie to you just because you're talking to her. But Martha would, she'd ask the name of the father, and sometimes the woman would tell, sometimes she would not, but if Martha knew the name, she would give that name to the judge, 
and then the mother would be fined and possibly spend a night or two in jail. In theory, the law existed to <coughs> help women protect them, make sure that they had a means of support for their children. In reality, it was an exercise in public shaming because the men, there was no fine, there was no jail time. They could go to the judge, quietly confess their role, and go about their lives. And so this left Martha in a position where she had to defend these women in court. She had to advocate for them. And when you read her diary, you see that many times she paid that fine for them if they were unable to. And it set her in a position where she was, I mean, she really had a mothering role in her community, particularly for young women who had nobody else looking out for them. How big at this time was Hallowell? That is a great question. I have to flip back in the file folder in my brain. I want to say there were about 280 families. Families. So they would count it by families, not by people. Okay. Um, at the time this book is written, there were about 280 families, and that grew, of course, over time, and Hallowell became what is present-day Augusta, so clearly grew. Right. So families could range anywhere from two, two people to 20. To, to, yeah, yeah, right, right. So probably somewhere between one and 2,000 people. I would guess, yeah, 1,500, 2,000 people. Right, which is a fair amount if you're yeah. the only, you know, kind of medical person at the time, I'm trying to remember when was it wasn't her name Blackwell? Wasn't she the first actual female? Elizabeth Blackwell. Elizabeth, was the right? First, and, yes. And she was Victorian, wasn't she? So you know, back in 1789, 90, when you're writing, there really weren't any were not female many. doctors. Yes. And men, I mean, there were there wasn't really medical schools, and you know, men. I'm trying to remember, but you know, surgeons were not actually doctors. If you read Regency fiction at all, you will probably know more about this. But, you know, they would put out, I think it was a barber pole mm -hmm. that indicated that, right, you know, that a surgeon could, um, you know, just randomly saw things off. Um, and if any of you watched, any of you watched the really good PBS program, I think it was PBS about John Adams and his wife, the Adams family. Do you remember when their daughter developed um, breast cancer and how horrendous the breast cancer, I mean, they tried to save her by operating to remove one of her breasts. Of course, there was no anesthesia, so they had to get her drunk. Um, well, that was the only anesthesia that they had, you know, it was basically alcohol. And they did remove one of her breasts, and she did live for a while, and then she got, you know, cancer again. And that was the part of that whole thing that really stuck with John Adams and his wife were superbly healthy, but this unlucky daughter, you know, it was just so tragic to, you know, to think about going through that kind of experience. So she elected to just die from it the second time rather than have As a second I. surgery, which probably would have been pointless anyway. But, um, you know, medicine was really extremely crude back then. So Martha, in lots of ways, was amazing, you know. She was remarkable. Uh, in the book, there is a young doctor that is in town, and he is a graduate of Harvard Medical School. And he shows up, and he is 24 years old, and he has just graduated and believes that he knows everything there is to know about labor and delivery. And so he and Martha actually go head-to-head -head quite a bit in this book, and all of that is real. Every bit of that is real. Every diary entry, their confrontation with each other. So we're looking at a moment in time where the legal system was barely formed. You have to take everything you think you know about due process and chuck it out the window. And you have to take so much of what we take for granted as medical care and throw it out the window. And in Martha's case, the care of women having babies was the most primal need. And it was knowledge passed from woman to woman to woman after generations and generations. And we don't actually know when and how she began to practice midwifery. I would assume most women had a general knowledge, like your neighbor goes into labor, you can generally help. But she was a specialist. She was incredibly good. And I had to imagine the origins of that knowledge, and that is in the book as well. Sure. And in fact, there were various herbs and so forth that could act as abortifacients, for example. Any of you watch Poldark, the original Poldark? Do you remember when she was pregnant and, you know, she took whatever the abortion and, and it killed her, you know, because if you didn't know what you were doing with them. You'd then hemorrhage, yes, yes terrible. Exactly. Um, and then if you watch Downton Abbey, you remember that the daughter 
had, um, I'm trying to eclampsia, I think it was, but basically nobody knew what that was or, or how to, yeah, Sybil died. You thought it was going to be the mom, right? Because she was, had the flu or something, but it turned out it was the daughter because nobody really understood eclampsia and pre-eclampsia. And of course, nobody also understood the, you know, um, fallopian tube pregnancies, which I can't recall the name Ectopic. of. Right. So, you know, do you feel like, or it is suggests in the diary that Martha dealt with all of that, you know, That's maybe good. help some people with abortion or, you know. It's a good question. And everything that I read suggests that she never did. And there is a biography about Martha. It's the definitive biography. It's called um, A Midwife's Tale. And it is by Laurel Thatcher Ulrich. And she addresses this as well. Mm. There are dozens, I mean, probably hundreds of different herbs that Martha uses in it, over those 30 years. There is no indication that she ever performed that or prescribed that. Um, is it possible? Probably. Martha was a very, um, what is the word? She was a very faithful woman. Her, she Religious is not the right word. She was very faithful. She had a strong faith. She tried to live that out in her day-to-day -day life. Um, if she did, it is not recorded anywhere in her diary, but she recorded everything else. She yeah. recorded really terrible and terrifying things in her diary. So I would imagine had she participated, she would have written that down. One of the things that used to kill women in childbirth was something called puerperal fever. And what that really came down to is that people would deliver, a, a man usually, but could have been a woman, would deliver a baby and totally failing to wash their hands or have anything to do with hygiene would then progress on to deliver somebody else's baby. And the, you know, the germs would create, um, I don't remember that it was necessarily fatal to babies, but a lot of women died yeah, from peripheral fever. And I do not remember his name or the date, right, so don't but quote he me here. It out. But well, no, there was one doctor in early America. I want to say it was Boston. He had a 100% mortality rate because he never washed his hands. And ah. finally, people realized what? Yes, yes. Babies carrying the infection I'm, with him. Did anybody ever figure out bad idea? Yeah, they took control of it. It's astonishing, really. My mother had all six of us. I'm one of six. She had all of us either at home or in midwife centers. So I grew up going to these appointments. I grew up knowing these midwives. I was there when one of my siblings was born. So I have always had this respect for the profession and what they do. Um, I wish, I wish that was more universal today because it's, you cannot replace thousands of years worth of knowledge that is passed woman to woman to woman. They know things about the body. They know positions. They know maneuvers. They know when to wait. And it is not always successful. Obviously, many, many, many midwives lost mothers, but for her to go her entire career and never lose one in childbirth, I would think is extraordinary. So you chose to write a murder mystery around I Martha did. where you could have written something else. You could have written, you know, biography, romance, whatever. Why did you decide to present her with a, you know, a role as an investigator in a murder mystery? I love murder mysteries. Oh. <laughs> I, I grew up right, reading Agatha Christie. I, I wanted to write one. I'd My first novel was a murder mystery as well, and I missed the whodunit aspect. I also knew that I was going to include this rape trial, which is hard. It's heavy. I, yeah. I've been telling people, I, I honestly thought this is the book that nobody would read. I thought that I was asking too much of the reader. I'm going 200 years back in time. It is a long, cold, hard winter. There is a murder. There is a rape trial. And I just thought, nobody's going to read it. I'm obsessed with this idea, but no one else will read it. So I thought, well, if nobody is going to read it, then I will just tell the truth about everything. I will tell the truth about being a woman in middle age, I will tell the truth about long marriage. I will tell the truth about raising children and watching them go out in the world and what it's like to be a woman in the world. 
And I just kind of opened a vein and I poured it all on the page. <laughs> and then in June, I got the email that said, GMA has chosen your book as its December book club pick. And I thought, oh God, <laughs> people are gonna read it. <laughs> I told too much truth <laughs> and I couldn't take it back. And it was for me, the choice to do a murder mystery and the rape trial was a way to balance out these two hard things. If I'm gonna tell, this hard rape trial, I'm gonna balance it out with the murder mystery where the guy deserves to die. And so we're gonna go back and forth. It's a murder mystery, but it's a rape trial. It's kind of this Mobius strip where it's the two of them. But it's also about being a mature woman. I don't think we get to see enough mature heroines on the page. We should see mature women get to solve the murder. We should see them get to be the hero. We should get to see them have long fulfilling marriages which again is another thing we don't get on the page often enough. It's easier to write a bad marriage. There's all this inherent conflict and tension to write a good one that's happy and long. Those, that tension and conflict has to come from elsewhere. But I wanted to look at what it can look like 35 years after you make the right decision, after you have decades of marriage and parenting and life and joy and grief, who you are then makes you really interesting. And to me, that's what Martha was. She was a woman that had a lot of life under her belt, and that made her interesting to me. It's the opposite of trust no one. Um, and you know, one of the flaws I find in all of the books since Gone Girl with those casts is that there's hardly anyone to like in any of the books. And uh, I, I don't like to feel that everyone around me is you know, going to betray me or you can't trust anyone or people who are supposed to love each other are actually trying to do each other in. I think a, an, a steady diet of that can really alter your worldview. And it so can make you jaded. It can. And, and although we're calling this a murder mystery, in point of fact, it's not really a murder. It's an execution. And the only reason that it's a murder is that it wasn't an execution by the judiciary. It was a private execution. So but the crime, the crime that the man committed was mm -hmm. real, even if people didn't want to mm -hmm. believe it. At the time this story takes place, rape was a capital crime. So if you were found guilty of rape, they hanged you. But the problem is, for whatever reason, I will never understand, men seem to not want to hang other men. So the last public hanging for rape in Massachusetts happened about eight or nine years before this story takes place. So they found ways to lessen the charges. They found ways to kind of skirt around the issue. But I am convinced in those cases, in real life, you would have, this is just an example, I'm not tipping you off to anything. You would have an angry father. You'd have an angry brother. You would have somebody in the community that just decided absolutely not, we're going to take care of it ourselves. So what does that community look like when Lots of people have a reason to take out of man. Everybody suspects somebody else. But also when you have a community that is split down the middle and half of the people believe this rape happened, but the other half do not. What does that do to the tensions in a community over a very long, hard winter when you can't leave? You're stuck there with your neighbors for six months. That's fun. And for me, that's fun <laughs> to sit so there and figure out. Right, so it's so much fun. Are you thinking about giving Martha another book? Oh, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> Here's what I will say. I originally intended there to be more books. My publisher is on the fence, but I, I will say this. I can tell you nothing other than every single thread in that book I left specifically so that it can be expanded, and I do have another one entirely plotted out, ready to go, should I decide to do so. And it's going to be so much fun. Oh, my gosh. There are things that happen in the theoretical next one that you'll just be like, ah. Being basically subversive, I'm going to take on her publisher. Um, and let them, let them know that we've totally sold out. And, you know, we have an eager audience. And, you know, publishers I are... I could tell are, you what the title would be. Uh, the Rushing River. Oh. 
So it's spring. It's spring. It's, it's, spring. it's an exact Oh, it was going to be four seasons, wasn't it? So, yes. God, it's Vivaldi in print. <laughs> I love it. Originally, I wanted there to be one book for each season of the year. Right. And then as I got into it and realized how long winter is, I realized that might not work. But the, the theoretical sequel would be the inverse. It's not frozen solid. It's muddy and it's spring and it's impassable. And instead of the river being frozen solid and you can walk across, it is now this giant moving wall of water for months that splits the town in two. And then you can't get to whoever's on the other side. So every, the, uh, the tension that comes through the setting is completely flipped on its head. You're not cold. You're sweltering hot during a miserable summer. So I really like this plan, right? <laughs> I w hey, I'll put you in charge of getting me permission. Sure not. <laughs> I will. I will do that. I have weapons at my disposal that hardly anyone knows. Right. So, right. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's about all we can really say about the book. So I'm sure some of you have questions that you would like to ask Ariel. So, have at it. Yes. Yes, she is. Oh, that is a good question. So, thank you. That is a compliment. I hope I'm a badass. Um, I'm in all of them, right? So, what I will say, every bit about Martha's relationship with her husband was inspired by mine. I've been married for 23 years next week. I was so proud of that. And my mentor was like, you can do anything for 20 years. Talk to me when you've been married 50. So now I say I've only been married 23 years, but I have enjoyed every single one of them. So any, just any swoony thing that he says to her is inspired by my husband. Maybe not exact words, but things he would say or do. And every drop about what she says about motherhood, parenting, raising children in general, or that season where your primary work is winding down. That is me. I just, like I said, I just opened a vein and I spilled it on the page and I just assumed no one would ever read it. Ha, shocking. There's, uh, there's some of my personality that like don't cross me is definitely me, but, and this is really important, her demeanor, her personality is like this perfect blend between my mother and my sister. They are the kind of women, like I'm just, I will be everybody's friend. We will go have drinks, like come over to my house. But with my mom and my sister, you have to earn it. <laughs> if you want in their world, you have to earn it. And that is really what I drew on for Martha. If I didn't know how she would respond in a situation or what she would say, I'll go, okay, what would mom do? Or even scarier, what would Abby say? And then I was like, oh, God, help anybody. Just God help anyone who comes across Martha as my mother or sister. And that was really fun because for the first time, I wrote a character that was not entirely me. Like my last novel, codename Helene, I always tell people, if you like Nancy Wake, you'd like me. Because it's just, I just dumped my sense of humor into her. But this time I was able to take a departure. And anybody that likes her, I think, would love my mother. I, I always say I only fear two things in this world. It is God and my mother. <laughs> That's funny. Yes. How would this book be different if it took place today? Yes. Yes. That is a great question. I think it would cut too close to the bone. You know how sometimes if you're too close to something, you cannot see it. In this case, all of the big things, we, we see them in the newspaper every day. But there's something really poignant about taking a thing that happened in the past, writing about it, making you feel removed, either by setting or by time or by circumstances. And in that way, you can go, oh, God, nothing has changed. People are still people. Biology is still biology. And history doesn't change. Yes. We'd never, I mean, we would suspect. Yes, we wouldn't. The thing I love about Martha's diary is this is one woman in Hallowell, Maine, 
living a long, faithful life serving her community. She does not feel, I would not imagine, she could no more imagine this book existing about her than she could imagine an airplane or an automobile. She just went about her life, but she kept this record, and the women in her family valued the knowledge in that record so much that they kept it, and they, she, her daughters kept it, and they passed it to their daughters, and they passed it to their daughters, and they learned from it. And eventually, this loose-leaf pile of papers ended up at the Maine State Library, and somebody looked at them, and they went, wait a second, this is a primary document, not just for one woman's life, but for what life was like for most women at that time. And it exists to this day as one of the only records that we have of what women in Martha's day really endured. And I think about that a lot. I personally am going to burn my diaries before I die. <laughs> they all go away. Nobody gets anything. You're I'm too smart to keep one. But <laughs> <laughs> it's, I'm actually a hypocrite in that regard, right? I'm, I pour over history and I pick through details and I do not want mine recorded. It's just hypocrisy. Thy name is Ariel. Um, but it is so important. Somebody valued those papers. One woman's scribblings of her daily life turned into a bound manuscript that was kept that then Laurel Thatcher Ulrich took and made as the basis for her Pulitzer Prize winning biography. It won the Pulitzer for nonfiction the year that it was published. And it is the definitive history of Martha's life. And then I, a number of years later, very pregnant, stumble across a page in a devotional and it inspires me to write a novel. Like if you look at the dominoes and how they tip over for decades and decades and decades, it really is remarkable what we are able to keep and then what we're able to do with what has been kept. Sorry, I was on my phone because I keep forgetting to mention to you, if you really like this book, that there was a Canadian novelist named Margaret Lawrence who, God, Patrick, when was it? Maybe in the early 2000s. No, no, I'm talking about when she wrote them. Um, yeah, Hearts and Bones and three sequels, I think it is. And they are set in revolutionary New England. So just slightly before, yes. because you were at the Constitutional Convention, and even the cover is not dissimilar to really? the Frozen River. And as far as I can tell, they're only available in ebooks. But if you like this book, they are really wonderful. Margaret Lawrence, and look for Hearts and Bones, which is the first one. Okay. They, they are really Sold. fabulous books, I think. I love them. Um, yeah. Right. No. So I give it, I actually give an example in the author's note at the end, which you cannot read first. Do not read that author's note first. You'll be so sad about your life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Everything will be spoiled for you, but if you wait until the end, you'll have like this additional reading experience. So, but I give an example of a diary entry in the book, in her actual journal, and then kind of what I did to make that clear for you. There were some barriers that I removed. Like, for instance, she was completely literate, but she really didn't pay much attention to consistency when it came to spelling of names and places. And so you have to dig through things, and she would do abbreviations, and you have to really know what she was saying. For instance, there are a couple of phrases that she uses a lot. The first one is she would deliver a baby and she would say, I left so-and-so cleverly. And cleverly was just her way of saying, I left mother and child healthy. My favorite, absolute favorite repeated phrase in her diary is one that I learned over the course of the three years that I wrote it, which happened to be during COVID. Um, had I personally known that COVID was coming, I would not have suggested to my husband that we buy a drum set for our youngest son <laughs> in Christmas of 2019. So what I had was the thunder of a thousand drums above my head the entire time I wrote this novel. I'm not kidding you. My kids went to school one day and then the next day they didn't and then they were home for six months straight. But that was before um, virtual school. Regardless, every day I would sit down at my desk and I would write a portion of the book and I'd read a portion of Martha's diary and there is this phrase repeated probably 900 or a thousand times over 900 pages and she would finish what she did for the day and she would say I have been at home and I was like me too Martha <laughs> also yes for months and months and years and in a really 
fun way, that one phrase, I have been at home, sort of enabled me to form a kinship with her that I don't know that I would have had if I'd written this book at any other season of life. She lived and worked completely. Her life and work were intermingled. There was no separation between them. And for the first time, at least in many, many years since my boys were little, there was no separation in my life and my work. Everybody was home all the time. There are these little brushstrokes that worked their way in. There's a scene where Martha's daughters are cooking dinner and they're banging pots and pans around in the kitchen. Um, there's another scene where she comments about how loudly the men in her family walk. And you don't, <laughs> you don't realize how loudly your teenage sons walk until you just hear nothing but them walking through your house for hours at a time. So in the way that I couldn't have written this book when I first found the idea, when I had little bitty kids, I, c I don't know that I could have written this version of this book at any other time other than COVID because I got to live for a season the way that she did with my life and work all together. And I'm really grateful for that in kind of an odd way. This is, this is the product of the pandemic for me and I'm really proud of it. Well, and you know, you're on the other side of it, which yes, helps a lot, helps. right? It's always better to look back. They're back in school. Right. Patrick is over here, so I'm guessing he has a couple of questions from the audience. Oh, no, you were just listening? Oh, okay. Usually you emerge when you have a question. <laughs> I know. He's hiding in the, well, he's making everything work. So, um, yes, ma'am. So great question, and I actually have a good answer. The fox, two-part answer. The fox came to me the summer of 2018. My husband was remodeling our master suite downstairs, so we'd ha gotten temporarily kicked upstairs into one of the kids' bedrooms, and we'd shunted them off to the bonus room. And about 3 o'clock one morning, it was June 19th, that date is specific and purposeful, well, mean something to me now, but June 19th, 2018, we were woken up at about three o'clock in the morning by a sound that I can only describe as your most dearly beloved being slaughtered in their sleep. We get, okay, we did not get out of bed. He got out of bed. <laughs> I stayed where I was while he went to make sure everybody was still alive. Everyone was fine. The kids were fine. Nobody had killed each other. But what we found was a fox on our back deck that was barking. And if you have never heard a fox bark, go to YouTube, look it up. It will make your butt pucker. It is the scariest <laughs> sound in the world. It is not okay. It's terrifying. But the reason, the reason I remember all of that so specifically is a few hours later, a newborn baby entered our lives. And those two things, I did not have the baby. I have had all the kids I'm going to have. Someone in my family had this baby that was kind of born into a vulnerable situation. And the fox and the baby became linked in my mind. And so both of those worked their way into this novel. The fox is there. She opens the book and she ends the book. And then the baby has a cameo. And if you've read it, you know what I'm talking about. But originally, the very first version of this novel, every single animal, there is a coyote, there's a horse, there's a falcon, there's a bull, and there was a rabbit. Each section of the book opened in a similar scene where one of those animals was with the person they kind of belonged to, and each of those people represented a possible suspect in the novel. And I loved those scenes. I loved them, and nobody else did. My agent was like, they're beautiful, but I don't know what they mean. And then my editor was like, no, no. So I fought for them, I reworked them, I did everything that I could, and then I finally had to do the thing that writers have to do, which is, if you have to explain it, it it's not working. It's not going to work. So I pulled them out, and what was left, however, was the fox. The fox at the beginning and the end, and everybody recognized that she needed to stay. And so in a lot of ways, this fox in this novel, my fox that still lives in my neighborhood, and she has kits under the neighbor's shed every year, my fox is a red fox. This fox is a silver fox, which is kind of known as a ghost fox, and she's Martha's totem. She's this spiritual aspect to the book, and it just, to me, to me it worked, given what happens in that last scene and what you learn about Martha and her history and her family. It was this perfect way to bring everything to a close, but also to a symbolic close as well. I 
can hardly believe how great a lead-in this is to, and I'm serious about this, I just finished reading a book called The Fox Wife by Yangtze Chu, and she has agreed to sign copies for next month's historical mystery, which this month is, in fact, The Frozen River. And I liked it so much that I sent it to Lisa C., and so she's going to co-host it with me because The Fox Wife is a Chinese <gasps> Manchurian, and here's the thing. It's a silver fox. <gasps> Thank you very much for that. <laughs> All right. So the book will be here in February, the virtual event with Yangtze and Lisa is March the 5th. And if you're interested, I mean, there are a lot of parallels to. Um, it's fate. Oh, you mean the fox wife? Yeah. yeah. Well, the fox is able to take human form. Um, and it also has a lot to say about um, the last years of the last dynasty in China and the um, Qing dynasty and so forth. Did any of you read a brilliant book, which one of my totally favorite books last fall called The House of Doors? Mm -hmm. We still have a few signed copies of it. It is so brilliant, and it takes place in Malaysia, and it briefly moves over to South Africa, but part of it is a, a British couple who have Somerset, W. Somerset mom comes to visit them, so it's still under the British rule in Malaysia, and as a consequence of it, the British wife forms a friendship with Dr. Sun Yat-sen and has a lot to do with his efforts to um, mobilize people to overthrow the corrupt final Chinese dynasty. So there's material in the Fox Wife that relates to the House of Doors, which I truly thought was one of the best books that I read last year. It was absolutely brilliant. Um, by Tong, I'm trying to remember her name, Tong something Eng, E-N-G, yeah. So we still have maybe four or five copies of it. I can't recommend it to you enough. But um, how great that you have a silver fox and now we're going to have a silver fox there we all go. over again. It's a trend. Yeah. I like to be at the front of a trend and not no, the great. back of a trend. Still no question? You're just saying, you know? Good question. And it has changed through the years. My first novel was written entirely on Saturdays because I had a lot of children. And my husband was working this crazy job. And by the time Saturday rolled around, he missed the children and I did not. So so he would take them all day Saturday, and they would do dude stuff, and then I would go to a cafe and sit in a corner booth and write. And then as time went on, a couple of them were in school, which actually made it harder because I had some at home and some at school, and the hour, in that sense, the hours shrunk, and so I'd work during nap time or in the evenings. And then suddenly they all went to school, and there was this big magic yellow thing that came to the stop outside our house, and it would take them away. <laughs> And then it would bring them back seven hours later. <laughs> so for years, I wrote bus to bus. Um, and now, two are in college and two are in high school, and I do what I want. <laughs> but it was, I will say it was really hard. It was really hard for a lot of years. I had to get up early. I had to stay up late. And I stayed home with those children because nobody in the world can afford four kids and daycare. Um, and so it was just me. It was me and them. And I would have to decide every day, how badly do I want this? How strong is this dream? What am I willing to do for it? And I learned really early that you can get a lot done in 15 minutes. Like you can write three pages in 15 minutes if you really hustle. And it was also the thing that taught me how to plot my novels down to the page. Because if I only had an hour to write today, I didn't want to lose any of those words. And I needed to know how it was related to what I wrote yesterday and how it would relate to what I was going to write tomorrow. And it taught me to be good with my time and it taught me to research and plot in advance. And I still use all of those tools to this day. It's just now I have more time. But it turns out a quiet house is actually in some ways harder to write in than a busy house when you've spent 15 years writing in the midst of chaos. You have to adjust and learn. So. I love them so much. And they have a tendency to fall out, so I have little backers on them. I love them. They're like 
It's too bad. It's too bad because I have the best view of her watch, and her watch has magical qualities. Um, lots of flashing lights and other stuff. It's very cool. I know. I feel so boring sitting here, Lauren. I'm going to have to up my game, right? Um, so, final question anybody has before we break to getting books signed? No? You're all Ink and Alloy. I got them at Ink and Alloy. If you like the earrings, you can go to inkandalloy.com, and they are not too expensive, and they're not heavy either, so they don't hurt. Oh. oh, thank you. It's wonderful. It took I me like three years. <laughs> <laughs> so you asked what the next one is, correct? I can tell you. If you could you. see this lady's shoes, then oh. you would forget about the earrings. <laughs> 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 they are really fabulous. Wow. Okay. He asked me what the next one is, and I can act I can talk about that. There's okay. the, I mean, there's the theoretical Martha number two. I can definitely tell you that the next one that I will be working on is based on the life of a woman named Grace O'Malley. Have you heard oh, of her? Oh, the pirate. I've been yes. to visit. I've yes. even been to her grave. I've been I to the church. I've was done the there whole thing. in September. Western Ireland. Yes, the, Westport, yeah. Ireland. That's right. And there are murals in the church, which yes, I hope you're going to incorporate yes. into this book. Yes. Right. I'm going to do all of that. So Grace O'Malley was a female chieftain in Ireland in the 1500s. At this rate, I'll be in the Jurassic period if I keep going back. Mm. But in addition to being a female chieftain, she was also a pirate. A and pirate queen. Yes. The glorious the pirate, pirate queen. Yes, the yes. pirate queen of Ireland. And she was so good at what she did that she became this thorn in the side of the British to the point where she had to go meet with Queen Elizabeth I. And they kind of went head to head to resolve some of this conflict. What's fascinating about her is the monks who wrote the Irish history refused to include her. They were appalled at the idea of a female chieftain, so they just didn't include her. But we are lucky enough that she irritated the British so badly that her entire life story is written in, or m much of her life story is written in the English state papers. So her story was written by her enemies. And that will be the next, the next one that I take on. Oh, you're right. You are going backwards, but yeah. still, how great. Oh, did she? Oh. Yeah. There was also that. a Cornish woman who was married. Henry VIII had a child with the, with the wrong Boleyn girl. If he'd just been smart enough to stick with Mary, he would he actually had a healthy son, a healthy heir. He divorced Catherine to marry Anne, and that was his whole error. He should have divorced Catherine to marry Mary, and then he could have legitimized Henry Lord Hunston. And Henry Lord Hunston married a pirate from Cornwall. I mean, it's really fabulous, and she was a scourge. They all are. They, ta they literally take no prisoners. They're so much fun to write about. Yep, they are. History's just wonderful. Well, I want to thank you all for your attention. Let's give our guest, Ariel, a round of applause. <laughs> Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.